For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, exploring the future through the past and the architecture of Tucson's Sunshine Mile. From cactus to noodles to a haunted dress, what's in store during Film Fest Tucson? And how one woman's dream to help wildlife is now making a difference in the Sonoran Desert. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. In the post-World War II era, technological advances including television, air conditioning, modern building materials, and the ongoing American obsession with cars transformed many lives from urban to suburban. Architects who embraced the school of design called modernism looked to find ways to accommodate these changes without losing focus on basic human needs and aesthetics. You can find many examples of modernist architecture in Tucson, especially in the commercial areas that still stand along Broadway Boulevard. I went there to meet with Michael Beckerer. He's a principal for Swaim Associates Architects and president-elect of the local chapter of the American Institute of Architects. As part of Architecture Week, that group is joining the Tucson Preservation Foundation's Modernism Week to host a public tour inside the now shuttered office and retail spaces of the Sunshine Mile. Geographically, it's Broadway from Euclid to Country Club. Um, it was originally identified as the Sunshine Mile in 1953. It is really the, the first commercial uh, development outside of downtown. And then again, in the post-war period, it was really focused on the kind of car-centric culture that was developing after the war. How did modernist architects in their own era define their goals? Well, they were part of a larger movement that was happening all over the country and frankly was uh, started in Europe of looking at the future, looking at new technology, finding new ways of building that adapted to the changes in the way people were living at the time. So particularly, again, post-war, you have the growth of the car culture and, and the adoption of the car pretty much universally. And so the architecture had to adapt to that. So particularly on the Sunshine Mile, you see that the, the buildings are close to the street. They have large storefronts. So as somebody's driving by, they're going to be able to see the shops and see what's in them. And with the parking directly off the road, you could just pull in off the road to the shop and come in, rather than going downtown and finding a place to park and walk to, to the shop. Describe for our listeners where we're standing right now. What is this building? What is this space we're in? Sure. So we're at um, 2631 East Broadway. And this is a Nicholas Keller design building uh, constructed in 1956. It was commissioned by the Solot Realty Company. Um, it's part of what's called the Solot Plaza. Most people would recognize where Tucson Tamale used to be on Broadway. But it's really all of the buildings on that block. And uh, the Solot Realty Company uh, commissioned uh, Nick Keller to design this building. It was a travel agency originally. What would you say are the defining characteristics of the space we're in? It's a rectangular room. We've got some tile floors. I don't know how much of this is original, but obviously the construction is like very squared off cinder block, a little bit institutional in its design. But explain to me how that fits in with, with modernism and what am I missing? 
Sure. So all of that material is exposed. So something that the monitors adopted very much was exposing the natural materials as you use them. So you can see the block. You see that it's cinder block. Um, we're standing in the front of the building, which has a very high space. So it's very open and it's getting light in. We have a, a full storefront wall at the, at the front of the building, which was a, basically a new technology with the aluminum after the war. The roof is a wood structure, and again, the wood is exposed. So again, it's this honesty in material. It's bringing light into the space, having big open spaces. And then something uh, that Nick Sakeller did is he would integrate art into the project as well. So there's a band of Mesoamerican design in the storefront that was a Jim Savage sculpture. He was a local sculptor in, in the mid-century period as well. And you'll see that same artist in a lot of Nick's buildings around town. I'm glad you pointed that out, Michael, because when I looked at that band, I thought that's something that actually speaks to uh, pre-Columbian art, that actually speaks to a certain kind of primitivism that one might not naturally associate with modernism. You might think of everything having Jetson's detail, but instead in Tucson, we often see a kind of a recognition of Mesoamerican roots. That was a, a theme in modernism and in modern art. If you look at Picasso, he would a lot of times look back at African masks for inspiration for his art. So I think with mid-century sculptors, they were doing a similar thing where they were looking at other resources, uh, inspiration outside of you know, Western culture into more primitive roots and bringing that into the modern era. Michael, tell us where we are standing right now on Broadway. So now we are in what is called the Friedman Block, and we're in the former offices of Friedman Joe Bush Architects. As a firm, Bernie Friedman probably designed 60% of the buildings between these two blocks and a whole lot of the other commercial buildings along Broadway. Um, and this building is fundamentally intact from the time that, that the Friedman Joe Bush office was here. And it's, it's kind of a little time capsule. It's pretty cool. What are some of the hallmarks of the style? In this particular space, it's a little different than the building we were just in. Um, this is a commercial office space, so it doesn't have the same storefront open glazing on the front. It's actually a more opaque building. But when you come into the space, there's wood paneling, which is bringing sort of nature into the building. It has some low windows that create the illusion that the walls are sort of floating. And there's also the expression of the material. So again, you have the exposed wood. There's some metal detailing that's exposed. So it, again, it com comes back to that expression of the natural material, uh, bringing light in in very specific ways and just approaching the space in, in that way. When you mention the windows at the bottom of the wall there, it makes it look like the wall is sort of a built-in shutter device, as if the desert heat was just too intense and we had to keep it out at all costs. Yeah. And again, responding to the desert climate. So in a space like this, you know, they created a very thick southern wall to absorb that heat and really protect the interior. When you look at the commercial spaces on the Sunshine Mile, you'll see they have typically have fairly large overhangs that again shade the glass. So. There is a particular change in the way modernism was expressed in the desert to respond to the, the uh, climate. If our listeners are interested in taking the Sunshine Mile tour, what can they expect? So the, the tour is one of many events that are part of Architecture Week. And Architecture Week is a series of, of events that the Southern Arizona chapter of the American Institute of Architects puts on to really highlight architecture in our community, the importance of architecture, and the importance of architects. The Sunshine Mile Tour, being one of the events, is really to highlight the Sunshine Mile, to look at the buildings and really build the appreciation for what that mid-century modern architecture is and, and to show people the value that it has in our community as an asset. 
Um, the day of the tour will be set up in the uh, Palm Tree building in the Sola Plaza. We'll have registration and check-in there. And then it'll really be a self-guided tour. People can sort of walk down between the two blocks. We'll have about 30 of the buildings open uh, with docents at each building to talk about the buildings, talk about the architecture, and, um, and really you know, help people you know, see some of these small details that you know I've been discussing that really get overlooked when you're driving down Broadway at 40 miles an hour. So even where we stand right now, we look outside and we see some traffic barricades that are set up. And this is part of the Broadway widening project. Now, this has been something that people in Tucson have been well aware of for a long time. But how is that going to impact the Sunshine Mile? Who's advocating to preserve this history? And what do you think the future of this area might be? Sure. So there's actually a lot of work being done to revitalize the area. Uh, Rio Nuevo has gotten involved, and they've actually acquired three of the blocks along the Sunshine Mile, including the Friedman block and the Solot block actively soliciting developers to come in and, and redevelop those and preserve the architecture so the Solat block and the Friedman block will be saved. We're not tearing down any more buildings. Um, we're also doing some work with the zoning on the Sunshine Mile to be able to allow businesses to come in, reduce parking requirements, and, and make it easier for change of use so that we can get local small businesses back on the Sunshine Mile. As someone who moved to Tucson in 1991 and at first saw the architecture as being somewhat dated, somewhat connected to almost a Brady Bunch era in pop culture that didn't appeal to me, I've grown very fond of it over the years. And, and it would seem to me that losing this identity would be a blow to what Tucson is all about. Architecture from this era is sort of in what we refer to as the ugly valley right now. So buildings that are sort of 40 to 50 years old, um, Maybe their original use isn't viable anymore, or the area around them has sort of uh, deteriorated a bit. They tend to be, uh, they're not appreciated anymore. People don't see the value in, in them. So and we've lost a lot of really great modernist buildings that, that really just didn't make it out of the ugly valley yet. Um, so part of what we're trying to do with the tour and sort of elevating the awareness of the mid-century architecture is to try to help these buildings make it through the ugly valley so then we can have them for the future. And people can look back and see these really early commercial developments that, that are in Tucson because these blocks really were the first commercial development outside of downtown in the post-war period. And they're, in, they're essentially intact right now. So if we lose them, you know, we'll never get them back, obviously. Well, here we are in 2019, Michael, and modernism may seem quaint. In your perception, has Tucson outgrown modernism in any way? Well, I think modernism has really grown with us. You know, as we move forward and as we do contemporary architecture, you know, I can speak for myself where my training was in modernism and from the kind of modernist master. So we were taking all of those original principles of, you know, honesty, material, and, and light, and, um, and open space and really uh, finding a way to incorporate that into the way buildings are constructed today. And so that's the challenge for architects today is to really you know, continue these principles which, which are fundamental to making good space and, and having good design um, and, and bring those you know, into the modern area and in, into the future. Thank you very much, Michael. Thank you. The American Institute of Architects, Southern Arizona Chapter, presents Inside the Sunshine Mile this Saturday, October 5th from 2 to 5 p.m. You can check in at Solot Plaza at 2631 East Broadway Boulevard, and you can find some pictures of the building on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org.
Next weekend, Thursday through Saturday, October 10th through the 12th, FilmFest Tucson returns with a lineup that includes more than 40 international shorts and feature-length films. These include documentaries, dramas, and new forms of storytelling that combine features of both. FilmFest Tucson's director, Herb Stratford, came by the studio to talk about some of these movies that frankly caught my attention when I browsed the array of trailers that are featured online. I first asked Herb Stratford about how these movies were selected. The programming depends each year on a couple things. One, what's available, and number two, what resonates, I think, with our programming committee, but also what I think is going to play well in Tucson. The overarching theme, of course, is just a story, and so there's got to be a compelling story, and it's got to connect with audiences, and what we try and do is connect filmmakers or storytellers with audiences, and so I want our programming to always represent um, you know, a diverse group of stories, but also things that are contemporary, compelling, and, uh, and maybe conversation-starting. There's a film that has an interesting story behind its discovery, uh, and it's very Tucson-based. So tell us how Nascimento came into play. Really, it's, it's fascinating. A couple of weeks before last year's festival, I got a call from the folks at the Tucson Museum of Art, and we collaborate with them every year on a couple of films that are art-based documentaries and whatnot. And they said, can you come over and look at something? We found it in the attic. And I'm thinking, the attic? <laughs> I didn't know the museum had an attic. And uh, they said, yeah, it's the Corbett House. And so I went over, and there was this film, and it was a 16-millimeter film, and it was a documentary documentary uh, from, I believe, 1980 or 81 about uh, the Nascimento, which is in the at the Tucson Museum of Art, uh, the beautiful thing that's been there for, you know, for 50 years. Uh, it's been set up by the same family. And it was a documentary that was done with support from the Arizona Humanities Council. And so they said, we, we don't know what to do with this. Can you help us? And I said, well, first of all, we got to do a digital transfer and preserve it because it's been sitting in an attic. Uh, so we did the transfer. And luckily, there was a negative and a positive. So we were able to to combine some things because there had been some damage and so we worked with a local company and got a new master and uh, and then we you know of course cleaned up and, and did some things that we needed to do and so this is the first time that this is going to be shown which is really exciting and Dr. Jennifer Jenkins who is a U of A professor here she is doing some research uh, on kind of the history and then there'll be a presentation because it is a short film it's about 10 minutes long so they'll be kind of putting that into context much like we did a couple years ago with the, the, the beauty pageant film that we found down in business so I like that sense of discovery. I like when we can find something and then kind of preserve it and, and then tell the whole story about it. So that's exciting. It is. It's like peering through the decades back in time. Yeah. Well, people who listen to this show on a regular basis know it's no secret that not only do I love movies, I particularly love horror films. So I looked through and I thought, gee, I don't really see one. And then I stumbled onto a movie I had never heard of called In Fabric. How would you explain this film? This is the story of a of a haunted dress, and uh, the dress basically interacts with some folks, uh, different characters, and the impact that it has on their lives. And it's a it's sort of a genre bending thing because it's very stylistic and it's very kind of seventies high key color and kind of over the top. Um, there's a movie Love Witch a couple years ago that kind of is in that same vein. It's very esoteric, and it, it's probably not for everyone, but it's like if this is your if this is your jam, you're gonna love this film. <laughs> A purchase on a horizon? Just looking, thank you. The hesitation in your voice, soon to be an echo in the recesses of the spheres of retail. The dress is your image, onto what you project through an illusion. I'm just going on a date. I don't normally wear this kind of thing. Be bold. Your date will compliment you. 
Another thing that's playing as a major part of the festival is something that's got really deep Tucson roots. Dan Guerrero, a guy who's well-known in this community, is back with a filmed version of his stage presentation called Gaitino, Made in America. Dan is a, is, a, is a friend of the festival. He was here our first year, and uh, he actually was workshopping his Gaitino stage show when he was here. Uh, and so this is something that he's been on tour with. And it's really uh, this fascinating kind of multimedia experience about growing up and being a Hispanic gay man and what that means, and also being the son of, of a famous Mexican musician. And uh, it's, it's a very interesting um, take because it's a recorded version of his show. He's an amazing writer, producer, performer. So you get all that. East Los Angeles, the late 1940s. Truman is in the White House and I'm in the third grade. I'll hold while you count the rings around my neck. Basically, a Chicano is a Mexican-American who is not kidding. Five, six, seven, eight. And turn, turn, back, step. Ah, this isn't working. You gotta give me more. Five, six, seven, eight. The world of documentaries has gotten so diverse and it really exploded. I think digital filmmaking has helped documentaries to grow as a genre in a way it never did before. And a great example of that is this film called 147 Pianos. The truth is in the title there. It really features that many pianos. It does. It's a story of a this family-owned business in Chicago, and they are piano repairmen, salesmen, everything. They have a huge warehouse. And in this warehouse are 147 pianos that are playable. <laughs> okay, so there's probably more than that that are parted out. And so they get this idea to try and create an opportunity for all of those pianos to be played simultaneously, which if you think about it, for anybody who's a sound person out there, how do you even mic all this stuff? You know what I mean? And how do you have enough channels? And so it's really interesting to see not only the history of this of this fascinating kind of piano institution in Chicago, but the idea, the audacity that you would come up with this notion, and then you would find 147 people who could play. One of the pianists, uh, Shuri Enkbold, is actually a PhD candidate here at the University of Arizona. So after the performance, where you're going to see her as one of the pianists, she's going to be playing at the Scottish Rite, which is kind of fun. We get that little, you know, uh, kind of interactive opportunity to have a real pianist with us from the film. Charm. Some pianos have charm. Oh, they just charm to pants up with the listeners. It's a difference between resonance and charm. You know, uh, hard to put into words. What about the outdoor screenings that are happening? What kind of, a, of an event would that be for filmgoers? So we uh, we have two nights of outdoor screenings, Friday night and Saturday night, and they're on the north lawn of the Children's Museum downtown, and they're free. And so we try and find things that uh, are going to have a broader appeal, maybe things that are um, a little more family-friendly or just kind of a little more opportunities for us to collaborate with folks. Uh, and the, the Friday night is a food-based uh, evening, so we're actually showing a whole bunch of food documentaries and one narrative that we found and uh, that are food-based and Tucson Foodie and, and Yelp and some folks are helping us out with this. And of course, outside in October is beautiful. So it's nice to be sitting on a lawn and looking at some beautiful food on the screen. I always think about mama's cooking. I want to remember them every time I cook bakte. 
So then on Saturday, uh, we have a different kind of double feature. The first film is Motherload, and this is about uh, the creation of the cargo bike movement in the United States. And so uh, we're working with Living Streets Alliance to bring this film to town, which is a documentary. And we're a very bicycle-friendly community, obviously, so it's, it really is going to resonate here nicely. And then the second film is uh, Well Groomed, which is about the competitive world of dog grooming, which is very competitive, and it follows a number of folks who are in the circuit, so to speak. And this premiered at South by Southwest a couple months ago. It's a riot, and we're excited to partner with, uh, with the Pima County Animal Shelter, so we're going to have some adoption opportunities there, too, just because we want to you know, continue to collaborate with our local partners. And once again, that's at the Saturday outdoor screenings that you're holding. And in tribute to the history of cinema and the amazing thread that runs through American auteur cinema, you've got a guest of honor this year that people are really going to recognize. Yeah, very excited to have Peter Bogdanovich, the director, uh, producer, writer, a film historian, actor. Uh, he's pretty much ticked all the boxes. Folks will probably remember Bogdanovich for either The Last Picture Show in 1971 or uh, Paper Moon in 1973. Uh, last year, he did the fabulous documentary about Buster Keaton. Uh, so he is he's an amazing character and he is uh, he's 80 now and he is still going strong and so we were able to get him to come uh, at the Fox Theater on Friday night we're going to show one of his favorite westerns Winchester 73 which was actually filmed at Old Tucson and, and in Marana and all over the place uh, in southern Arizona uh, Jimmy Stewart fabulous story uh, and then we're going to do I'm going to do a Q&A with uh, Mr. Bogdanovich and then we're going to show the last picture show so it's kind of we're calling it an evening with uh, Peter Bogdanovich which is really special for us and a great opportunity for anybody who's a film historian, a film junkie, to kind of hear from the horse's mouth, so to speak. I mean, this is a person who was friends with Orson Welles, who, you know, knew John Ford. I mean, this is a, a link to Hollywood that doesn't really exist anymore. And so really excited and looking forward to that evening, too. Tony Bennett's cold, cold heart was on everybody's hit parade. Elizabeth Taylor was getting married. Boys wore ducktails. The police action in the Far East was Korea, and Anarene, Texas, like other small towns, is approaching the end of an era. You have some live events happening on Thursday evening, that's October 10th, and then the screenings are going to be happening Friday and Saturday, the 11th and 12th. Tell people where. We're actually on seven screens this year. So we're at the Scottish Rite Cathedral on Scott, which is uh, the 103-year-old Masonic building. Uh, we're three screens there. We're outside on the North Lawn of the Children's Museum. We're at the AC Hotel on Broadway. And then we're at the Fox Theater. So seven screens uh, for those events. And uh, that's, you know, a lot. <laughs> <laughs> FilmFestTucson.com is a complete schedule. Uh, all the information you need to know about showtimes and tickets. Herb Stratford, thanks for being here, and thanks also for your passion for film that keeps events like this alive in our community. Thank you. Next, we'll visit a place that each year helps more than 3,000 wild animals to survive. The Tucson Wildlife Center itself survives without government funding, only donations, and a workforce of more than 150 trained volunteers. It's also that when the phone rings, there'll be someone there who's ready to help. Tucson Wildlife Center, this is Lori. How can I help you? Okay, we'll see you when you get here. Uh-huh, thanks, bye-bye. My name is Lisa Bates, and I'm the executive director of the Tucson Wildlife Center. I wanted to get out of the city 
So I moved out, uh, bought this piece of land vacant, was gonna start a business out here and uh, built this house. I wanted to build my own house out of Adobe. Anybody can do it. I went to the library and got a book, never laid a block in my life and uh, was able to build this house. And, and then I'm sitting there, what am I gonna do next? <laughs> and that's my passion. Nobody talked about passion in those days. You know, what kind of job am I gonna get next? My friend said, well, what are you passionate about? I said, well, it's going back and doing wildlife, rescuing wildlife. So that's what I did, start rescuing wildlife. My name is Lou Ray Whitehead. I am the animal care supervisor here. I came here 15 years ago. I came as a volunteer. I volunteered, worked in the education program too. I really like the concept of rescuing the animals and then seeing them being released again. I really like working with animals and I haven't left. <laughs> what I like most about working here is the fact that it, I feel like I'm doing something to help an animal that normally would not be helped. Well, full body, whatever. My name is Roberto Aguilar and uh, the people here call me Dr. Bob. But I am a veterinarian, I'm a wildlife veterinarian. And uh, while a vet normally sees two or three species, an exotics vet will see 30, I see about 150 here. And it's very important to have people who know what they're doing. Do you want the leg? Yes, okay. I have it. But we have very dedicated, strong technical staff and they, they're not only concerned with wildlife, our volunteers do it for free. And the staff who come here are extremely well qualified and competent. So thanks to them, I you know still have all my fingers. Oh my cat got her. Oh no, cat caught. Well, we started a, a surgery room in our original shop, and the veterinarian said, "Get us out of this closet." So we moved them into another bigger surgery room in the old horse stalls, and it's not long before they're complaining about that. So we decided we wanted to build them a real hospital to work in and we got a bequest from a gentleman who loved wildlife and wanted to see him released, treated, and, and then released back to the wild. So he helped us build this hospital. My name's Anneli Henneke, and I'm a volunteer. I'm a retired phys ed teacher. And then when I retired, I was looking for kind of some volunteer thing to do to give back. I probably learn something every day about a specific animal or about their care or their habits. And the people here are great to work with. You know, the animals, they get a little feisty sometimes, but they don't talk back. So you know, it's fun. A good work ethic will take you a long way. So we had dreams and this is my dream. I don't know that I ever envisioned it coming to fruition like it has. I couldn't be more happy. This is my passion and my dream, and uh, I love every day at this center. That story was about the Tucson Wildlife Center, produced by Tony Paniagua and adapted for radio by Maya Hoffman Long. You can see the story as it appeared on Arizona Illustrated at azpm.org. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. This show originates in the AZPM radio studios. 
AZPM's news director is Andrea Kelly. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. I'm producer and host, Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.